Good evening, everyone. My name is Julie Hannaford, and I'm the Deputy Chief Librarian, and I'd like to welcome you to this evening. Um, this is the 18th annual Ale Alexander C. Pathy Lecture on the Book Arts. And I want to thank you by, by thanking Alexander Pathy, who's Professor Emeritus and former Vice President of the University of Toronto. Professor Pathy has been a great advocate for not only the Fisher Library, but also for the whole central library system. Alex serves on the Board of Advisors for Friends of the Libraries, which works closely with our Advancement Office on the Boundless Campaign. I know that his guidance has been appreciated by all of us, including Chief Librarian Larry Alford and Director of Advancement Megan Campbell. The Fisher Library is particularly grateful for his ongoing sponsorship of this lecture series. Thank you, Alex. Before I, in <laughs> Before I introduce this evening's speaker, I would like to update you on Anne Donterman's retirement tribute. As you may recall, the UTL community and the Friends of the Fisher Library were invited to support a tribute in Anne's honor to recognize her significant contributions to the libraries over the years. Anne requested that support be directed towards the Media Commons Digitization Fund for Preservation and Access. To date, over $35,000 have been donated in recognition of her able leadership. Now, I'd like to extend a warm welcome to our evening speaker, Professor Alan Gailey. Alan is familiar to many of us. He teaches book history, bibliography, and digital humanities at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information. His research focuses on the history and future of the book and on bridging the fields of book history, digital humanities, and critical information studies. Alex, uh, Alex, Alan, <laughs> Alan recently co-curated the Fisher's very successful Shakespeare exhibition, So Long Lives This, Celebrating Shakespeare, 1616 to 2016. Alan is also the author of the Shakespearean Archive, Experiments in New Media from the Renaissance to Postmodernity. This evening, Alan will discuss how Shakespeare's works have inspired creativity and innovation in the book arts from the earliest editions to the present. Drawing on the sometimes troubled relationship between print and performance, Alan will consider how the Shakespearean books, arts, have negotiated the divide between page and stage. Welcome, Alan. Thank you, Thank you Julie. Um, let me first make sure that the sound is working correctly. Can you, okay, I get a thumbs up from the back, okay. How's this? Okay. It's the problem with being tall. It doesn't work very well on airplanes either. Well, let's, let's make do with this. I'm actually, I, I very often have the great privilege of teaching in this room, in which case I'm mostly shouting at my students anyway. But, uh, well, thank, turn up, okay. Um, well, thank you everybody uh, for being here tonight. And uh, thanks especially to Alec Pathy for his support of, of the Fisher Library. I'd also like to begin by thanking the uh, Fisher staff uh, who have been a great support, uh, not just uh, in preparation for this talk, but also for the Shakespeare exhibition that I'll be drawing on a bit for this talk. Uh, it, to be able to work with them on, on that exhibition was, was a real privilege. And also I'd like to thank my co-curators, uh, some of whom are here tonight, uh, uh, who, uh, we were all led in that effort by Scott Schofield, but uh, Peter Blaney and Marjorie Rubright and I, 
and Ann Dondertman as well. Uh, we, it was a real privilege to work on that particular exhibition. So um, I'll thank you as well for being here on game one of the World Series as well. I know that, that, that we, are, we are competing with something. I, if the Jays had made it to the playoffs, I had a contingency plan that would have involved bringing the, the score in periodically to check what was going on. But the talk might have turned into who needs to be traded and things like that. So we'll leave the game uh, where it is. However, if you love Shakespeare and you love baseball, I recommend Googling the phrase Shakespearean baseball game. And what you may find is um, a great Canadian uh, resource on uh, uh, Canadian Shakespeare adaptations. And at that website, you will find uh, the Wayne and Schuster's 1958 comedy sketch, a Shakespearean baseball game, where a baseball game is narrated with uh, bits of Shakespearean uh, verse and uh, phrases repurposed. Um, might be better than some of the games we saw recently, in fact. Um, so this talk is, in some ways, a follow-up to the exhibition that, uh, that I was lucky enough to, to participate in, So Long Lives This, a celebration of Shakespeare's life and works. And uh, my contribution to that exhibition dealt really with the 19th century to the present, a little bit of the 18th century as well. But uh, my part in that exhibition looked at the book arts from the 19th century up until uh, more or less the present. We were actually able to get quite a lot of the present into the talk, or sorry, into the exhibition. And uh, so my focus wasn't so much on Shakespeare in his own lifetime. My focus was on what people have done with Shakespeare. And that's what I'm going to be talking about tonight. That's, in fact, a, a big interest of, uh, of mine in my own research area. I love Shakespeare, but I also love the way Shakespeare has circulated in the world, the way it's inspired different kinds of art uh, in different kinds of media, and especially the book arts. And that's what we'll be talking about this evening. And uh, it was an especially valuable experience for me because much of my background deals with scholarly editing and textual criticism and bibliography and especially digital reinventions of those forms. And it was a real education for me to delve into the book arts and to see what illustrators and other book designers have done with Shakespeare's works. So uh, the exhibition and the catalog were really broad surveys. And what I'd like to do this evening is delve more deeply into some specific examples that uh, I, I was learning about as, as we were putting the exhibition together. This is a chance really to reflect on what these books can teach us. And the theme specifically that I'd like to develop is the book as a performance. Uh, there's, of course, a wide body of scholarship on the book and its relation to performance. I um, can consider the theme of the book itself as a kind of performance. And uh, this is a talk in four parts, and the first part it will deal with the Barbarian Press Pericles, which was one of the items that we featured in the exhibition. So the Barbarian Press uh, Pericles, it's a favorite of many who are part of the Fisher community here. And it's a favorite uh, partly because it's a great achievement in Canadian book design. Barbarian Press is based in Mission, BC, run by Crispin and Jan Elstead. And it's... Uh, it's a press that has been in operation. It's an award-winning private press. And they took on Pericles as a publishing project a number of years ago. And they took on a very difficult play when they decided to publish an edition of Pericles. And I'll, I'll get into some of those difficulties as we go along. Um, but for their edited, or sorry, for their illustrated edition of Pericles, which was published in 2011, they collaborated with Simon Brett. Um, very talented illustrator and wood engraver. And when I call this an illustrated edition of Pericles, this is the kind of illustration I'm talking about. 
there, there's illustration, then there's illustration. This is illustration. And uh, you can look at this image of, of, a, of the jousting scene in, in the tournament scene in, in the play Pericles, which you may or may not be familiar with. You can almost hear the sound that comes with this image. Um, now, the medium that Simon Brett is working in here is wood engraving. I'll be talking about wood engraving a fair bit during the talk. We'll see more examples of it. And uh, one of the things that is great about studying this particular book and Barbarian Press as a private press here at the Fisher is the Fisher also holds their papers and is an archive for that press. So we were able to look at Simon Brett's working papers and we had them on display. So you could almost look over his shoulder as he was working on a very complex image of this sort. I'd also like to dig a little bit deeper into some of the writing that Simon Brett did for a companion volume that uh, came with the uh, Barbarian Press, Pericles. And Brett discusses illustration in his uh, companion piece. And his comments in that discussion inspired much of my thinking about the relationship between page and stage. So I'd like to pause and, and just look at what Brett said and then come back to that and develop that theme a little bit. So as Simon Brett said in relation to illustration, quote, some purists reason that a text is complete in itself, and so disapprove of illustration. Pericles, however, is a play. A play text is not complete. It needs actors and effects to bring to life what it does not itself contain. Illustration can also do that, but all the more needfully in a damaged text like Pericles. And I'll talk a bit more about what he means when he calls Pericles a damaged text. But he asks, what is an illustrated book? This is the question that he, he poses. He goes on to talk about uh, comic books as illustrated books, but he says comic books may illustrate too much for something like Shakespeare. And yet on the other extreme, a few scattered plates here and there may not illustrate the text enough, may not actually facilitate reader engagement. So he comes to his argument, and he says that what the perfect balance, the fully illustrated book, may be nags at every illustrator's mind. A play acted out on the page is an answer, bringing to life the silences, illustrating the dumb shows, articulating the voyages. He's hinting here at an idea that is prevalent in performance studies, especially in the work of Bill Worthen. And uh, something that Worthen argues in his recent book, Shakespeare and Performance Studies, is that a performance is never simply an execution of the text. Performance is not a decanting of the text into an event. Uh, it is not just an algorithm. The text is not an algorithm that, that performance sets into motion. Rather, Worthen wants us to think about performance as something that generates its own authority. Its uh, performance in practice involves many different agents who interpret or even struggle with the text in the process of bringing it to the stage or whatever medium the performance uh, embodies. Now, Worthen is writing when he argues this uh, primarily about theatrical and cinematic performance in various media, digital and otherwise. It's useful to think about this idea in relation to the book arts as well, so we'll consider that in, in tonight's talk. Simon Brett's work on Pericles is an opportunity to do this, given that his illustrations, as he says, bring to life the silences, illustrate the dumb shows, and articulate the voyages. So speaking of voyages, let's start with perhaps the most recognizable image from the Barbarian Press, Pericles. This is the opening that we had for the exhibition. And in this opening here, we have, uh, well, before I get to the specifics, Pericles generally is a story about voyages. It's a, it's a story of Mediterranean voyages and storms and their consequences. 
like many of Shakespeare's other plays. Um, it is episodic. It is also a play with a chorus. The character John Gower, a medieval author who's, uh, who provides this, one of the sources for the story of Pericles, is the chorus in the play. Comes on stage, tells us what's happening, tells us what's been happening off stage, as it were, and catches us up with the story. And here we see uh, Pericles himself imploring Neptune in the upper right corner to spare his ship. And notice some of the techniques here that, that Brett and the Elsteads and everyone who collaborated on this are, are using to bring this to life, to create a performance on the page. So one obvious technique here is typography. And you can see on the left the chorus Gower is raising his voice over the storm, as it were, to explain what's going on. And then on the right-hand side, Pericles is doing the same. He says, thou god of this great vast, rebuke these surges, and so on. So the typography here, this is not a traditional edition. They are using type design, size, placement to evoke a certain kind of performance. The images, though, as well, are worth noting. What, he's, what Simon Brett is doing here is actually using a composite of different wood engravings that he is, is kind of visually stitching together. You can see the lines there. They didn't try to uh, conceal them too much. You can see these in some of his drafts as well uh, to create images that are not just rectangles. They move up and down the page and even over the opening at one point. Pericles as well gestures across the opening. And this is something that we'll see in a few other examples where the designers have used the physical form of the book as, as, as pages that face each other across an opening. And in this case, the opening also serves to enact the division between the human and the divine world. We have the human on the ship asking for his life and his family's life and the crew's life to be spared, and then we have the god of storms on the other side looking away, as it were. Um, so this is not just illustration. This is staging. And this is uh, obviously something that draws on the tradition of graphic novels, but it goes beyond those as well. So this is probably the most dramatic and perhaps well-known opening um, in the Barbarian Press, Pericles. I'd like to look at a few more subtle uses of illustration, integration of illustration with the text as well. So this is a more typical page in the Barbarian Press, Pericles. And uh, you can see, again, images mixed in with text. We, again, another storm image, lots of storms in this play. The part I'd like to zoom in on is on the left-hand side, and I'll, I'll blow up part of that image there. So what we're seeing here are illustrations as stage directions. This is a very subtle but very, very innovative and effective use of, of image mixed in with text. So here we have uh, a, a very simple stage direction. Pericles shows the letter to Simonides. The lords kneel to him. And then below that, we have another stage direction that is accompanied with an image, or an image that's accompanied with a stage direction. Then enter Thaisa with child, with Lycorida, a nurse. Simonides shows her the letter, she rejoices. Or Simonides shows her the letter, she rejoices. Letter reading on stage can be a very difficult moment to stage. Watching someone read a letter isn't that interesting, necessarily. This is something that, that uh, can be a very boring moment on stage, especially letter reading is often used to drive the plot. It's exposition, it's delivering information, um, and yet you're watching somebody interact with a document that you usually cannot see yourself. What they've done here is taken moments of letter reading, especially at the top, and made it a, a little bit more dramatic, a little bit more engaging. But what I especially like about the top one 
is that the stage direction and the image are inserted into the rhythm of the language. In fact, it shows up between two lines of a rhymed couplet. It ravished the regions round and everyone with claps can sound. You can see that there's, there's a comma at the top and the, so this is interpolated into the language itself. This isn't just something off to the side. So there's a number of just small subtle touches like this throughout the book as well as these, these big dramatic images. Speaking of language, it's also worth pausing to note uh, that Pericles itself offers a number of particular challenges on that front, text and language. Uh, Suzanne Gossett's Arden edition is probably the best place to, to read about uh, the, the scholarship that deals with Pericles. Uh, in her edition, she actually departed from the Arden's traditional format of a note on the text at the end. She put the note on the text at the beginning because it was so important that it had to be dealt with in the introduction. Um, I, I'm just going to skip over a, a great deal of scholarship that's in, included in her introduction, but one of the things about Pericles that makes it an anomalous play, as she calls it, is that it's probably a collaboration with George Wilkins. Uh, Shakespeare has collaborated, of course, as we know. In fact, there was just an NPR story about Oxford University Press, uh, including Marlowe as a collaborator, which we can talk about or not, uh, as, as you choose in the question period. But um, Shakespeare, toward the end of his career, we are fairly certain, collaborated a bit as well. And uh, Pericles, apparently, the, the, best, the best we can say about it is that it was probably a collaboration with one George Wilkins. Um, it wasn't a play that was included in the first folio of 1623. It's a text that survived uh, in quarto, and that text appears to be faulty in places. So it makes it a difficult play to work with. Also, it's a play whose style is deliberately archaic. It's a throwback, a deliberate throwback. It's not about psychological interiority the way, say, Hamlet is. It's a lot, I, I, when, I, when I read it, I think of George Lucas and Star Wars, in that it is, this is not necessarily very nuanced, subtle language, but that's not what it's about. It's about something else. Uh, it's very episodic. Uh, the story jumps gaps in time, and it uses that fairly old-fashioned device by this time of a chorus to narrate what has happened in those intervals. So those intervals are sometimes represented as dumb shows. And here we have another uh, page in which uh, Gower is moving ahead the plot and describing uh, there is a dumb show that takes place where, where, where Gower is narrating what happens, but there's also action on the stage acting it out. Um, Simon Brett mentioned illustrating the dumb shows, and here he is doing that more literally. So to zoom in on, on uh, the dumb show that I'm talking about. So this is Pericles being brought to what he believes is the tomb of his long-lost daughter, Marina. And the uh, stage direction is worth reading. Dumb show. Enter Pericles at one door with all his train, Cleon and Dionysa at the other. Cleon shows Pericles the tomb, whereat Pericles makes lamentation puts on sackcloth, and in a mighty passion, departs. That's, that's his stage direction. That is, that is not quite exit pursued by a bear, but that's a great meaty stage direction. Sackcloth, lamentation. So note here, though, how the image, the illustration that comes with this stage direction, combines temporal layers in one image. Uh, in the middle, just to the right of the monument there, we have Pericles making lamentation. And then on the right-hand side, the same Pericles puts on sackcloth and in a mighty passion departs. And note as well Brett's subtle use of three panels. You see a, kind of a triptych there. There's a division in, in two places, emphasizing the unity of the scene, but also the movement of the action. Again, a technique that 
is very much like those of comics and graphic novels. So this page also happens to include another example of how the book performs the passage of time or marks it in its own way. And that shows up in the, uh, in the red box down there. And I'll, I'll zoom in on that. Um, so the bottom of the page here shows a portrait of Pericles as time and sorrow have taken their toll upon him. And this portrait here is a, one in a series of portraits that are almost always placed in the lower right-hand corner of the opening, uh, at the bottom of the recto leaf. And it's almost always the same size. So it, it's, there's a sort of continuity that runs throughout the story. It's a visual motif. Uh, and it registers continuity, but also change. So here are those various portraits, one after the other, the young Pericles at the beginning of the story, shipwreck, uh, Pericles as king, a uh, little older, like life's just getting worse. It's like a country song, really. Uh, and then the, the one, the opening that we saw, and then finally, uh, Pericles at the end. And uh, Pericles' face is registering the story, as it were. It's an accumulation of experiences. It's worth remembering, though, too, the, the nature of this story. Pericles is a play that is one of Shakespeare's late romances. It's the more well-known plays in that period are, of course, The Tempest, uh, the Winter's Tale, one of my very favorite Shakespeare plays. And in these late romances, death and loss happen along the way in the story, but there's also redemption and restoration at the end. This isn't just King Lear, um, though even in the romances, that redemption and restoration do, do come at a price. We can see some of that price registered on Pericles himself. So I'll move on from Pericles in a moment, but I'd like to note I'd like to really emphasize that Barbarian Press could have done The Tempest. They could have done something, not easy necessarily, but they could have done something familiar, something safe, something that is the Shakespeare that a lot of people know. Instead, they took on Pericles. They took on a play that is relatively obscure. It has a difficult text. It's not a play, my guess is that we would probably have some difficulty, well, maybe not in this room, but many people would have difficulty quoting Pericles. If we, if we quoted Hamlet, Othello, any number, Romeo and Juliet, a lot of the language of those plays travel with us in our experience. Pericles, probably not so much. But um, by taking on this particular difficult play, they've given us an example of how the book arts in the right hands can reinvent an older work and can help us to see that work with new eyes. So if you want to discover part of Shakespeare's work uh, that you may not know, I really do recommend coming to the Fisher, calling up Pericles, or calling up Pericles, then coming to the Fisher, and uh, spending an afternoon with it. It is a wonderful book, and it is here to be read and used. So that was part one, fairly long part one. Uh, part two uh, is rather briefer, but this is a chance to look back to the history of Shakespeare illustration <coughs> Uh, and looking back particularly to Nicholas Rowe's edition of 1709. So I'll bring up one of the images from Rowe. So Nicholas Rowe in the history of Shakespeare editing is, is not as important really or as, as discussed very often as other 18th century editors. He's not as controversial as Alexander Pope. He's not as comprehensive or systematic as Samuel Johnson or Edmund Malone. He's not as textually insightful as Edward Capel. But 
Rowe is very important for a number of reasons. He's involved in a few firsts in the history of Shakespeare publishing. His edition of 1709, actually more than one edition in that year, it was the first to have a named editor. Prior to Rowe, Shakespeare had been published in quarto and also in the four folios. And uh, the fourth folio was, was the most, before Rowe, the fourth, the fourth folio was the most recent uh, collection of all of Shakespeare's works, or many of Shakespeare's works together in one volume. When Rowe came along, it was the first to have an editor's name assigned to it. It was also the first to have what we would associate with the, the editorial scholarship, biography, other sorts of things attached to the text. It's also a first Rowe's edition because it was a new format. Rowe published his edition not as a single folio, but as works separated across a set of octavo volumes. And uh, as I mentioned, those volumes also included a certain amount of editorial apparatus, which would grow and grow and grow over the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries. But this was the beginning, really, of the named Shakespeare editor, someone whose names we know. The folios were perhaps edited in a certain way, but we don't know the names necessarily of those who did that work. We do know the name of Nicholas Rowe. It's also a first because it was the beginning of Jacob Tonson's Shakespeare publishing monopoly. And uh, for the full story on Rowe, I recommend checking out Andrew Murphy's wonderful book, Shakespeare in Print. Um, I'm not going to get too much into the editorial history, but something that I learned about this particular book, I knew about the editorial history going into the exhibition, but in the course of the exhibition, I came to realize that this is also the first edition to include illustrations of the plays in any, any regular manner. So here we have, uh, uh, there's a, an example of a frontispiece that appears with each play. Here's the frontispiece for Measure for Measure. And you can see here that this is echoing the early 18th century stage. We have Shakespeare in modern dress, or modern for 1709. Notice as well the curtain at the top of the image, hinting at a kind of a proscenium stage and giving depth to that scene behind. Uh, this is an interesting image, but I'll show you the, the, the row illustration that I really fell in love with while working with this. Uh, and again, this is, this is, there's kind of a storm and lightning theme to uh, the talk this evening. I was almost hoping for bad weather outside because that would have <laughs> given it a nice gothic touch, but uh, images do the job. So this is uh, obviously the frontispiece for The Tempest, and I'll dig into the details of this image um, a little bit more. But what we have here is the opening scene from The Tempest in which Prospero on his island is sending spirits to wreck the ship in a storm so that our main characters can arrive on his island and the plot can unfold. Unlike in the previous play, Pericles, however, uh, sorry, unlike the previous image, Measure for Measure, with that frontispiece that, that was really evoking staging, we have the page moving away from the stage. We have something that is, no, is more like the theater of the imagination, as it were. And this is an image that really requires the reader to do some work uh, when looking at it. Uh, the, the eye isn't necessarily guided to one place. And in fact, Prospero is in here. It's almost a bit like, where's Waldo? Where's, where's Prospero? Well, he's there. There he is. Um, the reader has to work to find him, though. This is the agent that's causing this to happen. This, this is the character who is, is the cause of all this. And he is not out front, you, you don't, it's, it's not Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings or anything like that. This is, this is almost forgettable, an afterthought uh, buried in the image, but he's there. And uh, so it's an example of an, an illustration that, like many of Simon Brett's, really invites participation from the reader. There is work that we're being asked to do here. 
I'm also fascinated by the fact that in, in 1709, apparently they thought lightning was curvy. I don't know what to make of that. Um, so we also have a bit of an inversion of the uh, relationships in that Pericles storm image where the human agent who's causing the storm is almost hidden here as well, and it's a human agent causing it. So the reader is put in a position not unlike the characters on the ship in that they're trying to make sense out of apparent chaos. It's also significant that the placement of the image in the book coincides, uh, even precedes, uh, uh, the opening of the play. That is, it's, this, this is something that coincides with the action that's described in the opening of the play, but the image actually comes first, even it, it faces the title page, not the play text itself. So the frontispiece in its own way initiates the action that continues when the reader turns the leaf. One final point I'll, I'll uh, leave us with as we move on from Rowe is that the editorial tradition in Shakespeare begins as much with images as words. That's a point that I, th I think is worth thinking about, especially as we look at electronic editions and the amount of text and other sorts of data and really textual information that is being attached to, uh, to text, variorum editions that bring that history of commentary together, relentlessly text-oriented. Many of our digital technologies are very text-centric rather than image-centric. And yet here we have the beginning of that editorial tradition, the tradition of the named editor, beginning with images as well. So that was a very brief look at an older tradition of uh, Shakespeare illustration. Uh, we'll move on to part three, which deals with Lawrence Hyde's work, especially his Macbeth. Can I do a quick straw poll? Who has heard of Lawrence Hyde in this room? Okay. Oh, okay, that's a fair number. In, yeah, for Friends of the Fisher Lecture, quite a number of people would know. Um, but I'm glad many of you don't know because one of the best parts of this exhibition was the chance to learn about Lawrence Hyde's work for me. Um, so I will, I will spend a little bit more time on, on Hyde. Um, so Lawrence Hyde brings us to the early 20th century. And it also brings us closer to home. Lawrence Hyde was a very talented artist in several media. He was born in England, but he got his start here in Toronto in the 1930s while studying at Central Technical High School, or Central Technical School, just down Harvard uh, at Bathurst. Some of you may have passed by it on the way to the Fisher tonight. And uh, Lawrence Hyde began collaborating with Kemp Waldy, who in 1933 founded here in Toronto the Golden Dog Press. And uh, Waldy was inspired by people like Eric Gill, the Golden Cockerel Press, others involved in the thriving private press movement of the early 20th century. And Hyde and Waldy worked on several projects together, and the Fisher holds a, a, a good amount of their work. Uh, Hyde's great Shakespearean work, however, was a set of wood engravings for an edition of Macbeth. And we'll spend some time looking at some of those images. So here we have the beginning of Act Two, Scene Two. And uh, I'll start in the upper right corner, actually, there. Uh, here we have Banquo and Fleance waiting uh, at the beginning of that scene. How goes the night, boy? The moon is down. I have not heard the clock. One of the great nighttime scenes, uh, opening a scene in Shakespeare. And uh, facing that engraving, that uh, wood engraving, again, that uh, functions as a headpiece there. On the other side, we also have an engraving that combines two scenes. At the top, we have the drunken porter answering the gate. And then at the bottom, we have Macbeth's vision of the dagger with the dagger itself rendered. 
And what I love about these images and shows up in so much of Hyde's work is that you can really see a modernist aesthetic at work here. Claustrophobic spaces, characters kind of contained in those spaces, um, and yet also with lines that are all out of, out of, out of whack. There's, there's not a, barely a right angle visible here, uh, especially the one at the top, I think of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari or these other examples of modernist uh, expressionist design with uh, shine and uh, with uh, lato, uh, <laughs> shadow and line, spoonerism. Um, the second image I'd like to spend a little bit more time on, we'll come back to some of those though. Uh, I'm really tempted to show you the whole book, but you can come and look at it after because we have it out here. Um, this is a, another combination of a facing illustration and headpiece to open a scene. And here we have Banquo's murder on the left. Um, imagine how Nicholas Rose engraver would have illustrated this particular scene. Uh, probably uh, much more of a neoclassical sort of design. Here we have stark contrasts, a mix of human forms and abstract shapes uh, to combine a kind of blunt brutality and yet otherworldliness as well. Uh, I've been mentioning wood engraving periodically. It's worth also stopping to just explain what wood engraving is. Um, wood engraving is, is a relief method in which images are en engraved onto the end grain of the wood, so not the plank side where you see the grain running up and down, and that's, that's a woodcut is engraved that way. Wood engraving is engraved on the end, and it's a very difficult art, and it had a real revival in the early 20th century. It was, it, there was some great work, Thomas Buick, uh, earlier, but uh, we've, we've been looking at a few wood engravers this evening, and uh, Hyde is one of the great wood engravers, I think, of his generation, um, not always credited as much as he ought to be. Uh, so unfortunately, one of the reasons I think we might not know as much about Lawrence Hyde as we ought to is that Golden Dog Press didn't actually publish a complete edition of Macbeth, sadly. In 1939, however, they did publish a wire-bound booklet that contains Hyde's 12 en engravings that he did for this project. So at least we have his, the visual work that he did for this edition. And that's something that the Fisher has here, and it's, it's on display in the front. Uh, and you're welcome to come and look through it afterward. Um, I also mentioned that, for me, discovering Lawrence Hyde's work was one of the best parts of working on this exhibition. And if you'll allow, I'll digress a little bit away from Shakespeare to look at one of his other works that is visually related. Um, Shakespeareans tend to love to talk about anything but Shakespeare. So I I'll hope you'll forgive a little bit of a digression away. Uh, but this is the work that Hyde is probably most well known for. And this is uh, a book called Southern Cross, a novel of the South Seas told in wood engravings. And really, this is his magnum opus, and it's a great achievement of the 20th century book arts. There are two things about this particular book that really caught my imagination. One is that it tells a very unusual story, but a very 20th century story. It's a story about nuclear weapons testing in the South Pacific on a place very much like Bikini Atoll, where uh, the US military detonated 23 nuclear devices between 1946 and 1958. This was published in 1951, right in the middle of that. So it tells that very difficult story in a very unusual way. It tells it wordlessly. This is a story told entirely with images, entirely through wood engravings, in fact. And it's part of a genre called a wordless novel. And there are a number of other examples of this genre out there. But um, Southern Cross is, is a particularly interesting one. So here's an example of some of the images that we see. Um, one of the pictures from early in the book we have, uh, on the bottom, we have that main, uh, one of the main characters, uh, one of the islanders, a fisherman, 
who is uh, pulling his canoe in from a fishing trip uh, ahead of a storm. And again, we can see even years apart hide with the lightning and the power of the elements. Um, we also see the human scale being dwarfed in relation to the elements too. One of the touches I think is particularly effective in the Macbeth image on the top is that small tree on the heath. It just makes the lightning look, look, look massive. Uh, here's another comparison of images from, from Southern Cross and Macbeth. So we saw this one at the beginning as well. Um, this is an example of Hyde using wood engraving to represent the play of light and darkness. So there's Macbeth, or sorry, there's uh, Fleance and Banquo at the top with the torch. Uh, below here we have a view of the island at night and the islanders around their fires, but viewed from the ocean. Um, there's also a kind of sinister watchfulness here. It's a peaceful image. Notice the reflection that's integrated into the image as well as the uh, points of light. Uh, there's a kind of sinister watchfulness and surveillance in both of these images as well, though. Uh, if you recall the beginning of Mac or Act Two, Scene One of Macbeth, the character who enters just after the beginning is Macbeth himself. So it's we could look at that top image as though it's from Macbeth's own perspective, watching these two characters before he enters. Similar to the image at the bottom here, we learn a few pages later that actually the islanders are are not alone. They're being watched by a U.S. Navy ship who is about to arrive to evacuate them. Uh, before the atomic test on their atoll. I'll move th through these fa fairly quickly, but this is another example of Hyde's uh, construction of images. Notice the layers, the groups of characters, two main characters in the front. We see them throughout the novel, the, diff the, the relationships that are about to unfold here. And then, of course, because this is a novel about atomic testing, we have to have the uh, uh, requisite mushroom cloud. This is this. Of all the things to depict with wood engraving, a mushroom cloud is pretty ambitious. And one of the things Hyde did here that I, I noted is, is look at the horizon, see how the horizon dips, em emphasizing the force of the blast. So I found it fascinating that the person who would go on to create this book is also somebody who would illustrate Macbeth using the same techniques. And uh, here's the last image of Hyde's Macbeth that I'll show you that um, combines uh, Again, different action here. At the bottom, we have the three witches moving in one direction, and then above them, Banquo and Macbeth riding to the castle in another direction. We have the supernatural world, and we also have the human world, politics and military strategy, but then agents of fate, perhaps, below them. And the story is, is the tension between those two worlds and when they cross paths, of course. So this is an example of Hyde using composite images uh, and, and putting time together in a combination in a single image. So a couple of last things to mention about Lawrence High before I move on. He went on to have a very successful career as a filmmaker and producer for the National Film Board of Canada. And uh, in his work uh, extended into the medium of film and television, including a 1971 documentary with Jane Jacobs called City Limits, which compares and contrasts Toronto and New York at the time. And he was also investigated at one point uh, during the height of the Red Scare in the Cold War for communist sympathies. And uh, I think it says something about something like a wordless novel that a novel without words can still get you into that much trouble. It's, it's that powerful a form. So anyway, I think Hyde deserves to be better known among Shakespeareans, certainly for this particular work. And uh, that's why I wanted to spend a bit more time on his. And I, I invite you to come check out the book at the top or at the front of the room. So we move on to our final part, 
the Cranach Press, Hamlet. And uh, here we're turning to work that is um, rather more familiar, uh, perhaps, to many of you, uh, because this is the, uh, here we're looking at an illustration by Edward Gordon Craig. And Edward Gordon Craig was the son of the great 19th century uh, Shakespeare actor, Ellen Terry. And Craig himself went on in his own career to become a scenic designer and a theatrical innovator, and in fact, a theatrical theorist as well. He did a lot of writing about theater. One of his most interesting innovations in his career, however, was the building and the use of small-scale models, like this one, to test experimental set designs, to test lighting configurations and plays of shadow, patterns of movement among human figures, among abstract, high-modernist sets. And to represent actors in models like this, he created small cutout figures, like the one, that, the small one that you see here, two of them actually. Um, often his figures would represent archetypes or other abstract figures, and these became known as his black figures. So the figure that you've been seeing throughout the talk here and on the poster for this talk is one of his black figures. This is a more specific one though. This is one that he created uh, for Hamlet. In fact, we're seeing here the, the player in Hamlet, the leader of the players that come and visit Elsinore. And Craig created this image as part of an ambitious design for a production of Hamlet that took place in Moscow in 1912 that was a collaboration with Konstantin Stanislavski. It was one of the defining modernist performances of Hamlet and I'll come back to that black figure in a second here, but what I'd like to emphasize, I won't talk about that performance very much, but I would like to emphasize its connection to a book, and that's this book here, The Cranach Press Hamlet. This is a book that appeared uh, many years later. Uh, it was first published in 1928 in German and then in 1930 in English. We're going to look at the English edition. And it's worth looking at the details here. So this is The Tragedy of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, Note that the text comes from J. Dover Wilson, and it's the text of the second quarto. And according to editorial theory and textual criticism of the time, this was the most up-to-date, most accurate, most, most, the, the text that reflected the state of scholarship at the time. Scholarships, of course, moved on, but they went to the trouble of not, they didn't just grab some random text. Project Gutenberg didn't exist at that time, but they used a text that reflected the best editorial knowledge of the time. Um, but this is also uh, a book that's not just about the text, in fact, not even primarily about the text. Uh, notice as well that this is also printed not just with Hamlet, but with the Hamlet stories, uh, the two of the main sources, Saxo Grammaticus and Belforest, uh, and the English translations of those two, and illustrated by Edward Gordon Craig and printed by Count Harry Kessler at the Cranach Press in Weimar. Uh, not named here, but also contributing to this book were Eric Gill, uh, who did some of the lettering, and Edward Johnston, who designed the type that we'll see in a moment that was based on earlier types by uh, early printers uh, Johann Fust and Peter Schoffer. Uh, Johnston himself is known for designing the type for the London Underground font, among other things. So here's what an average page looks like, and here's our black figure in context. Um, now, one of the things that uh, Craig noticed was that he could take the black figures that he'd made for his models, ink them, and put them on their side and get a print from them. So what we actually are seeing is his black figures being used in printing. And they show up throughout this book. Uh, again, those characters representing, in this case, specific characters in Hamlet, but with a certain amount of abstraction. 
I'll move on to uh, another one here. Uh, this is um, a chance for us to look in more detail at the page layout. What we're seeing here is the uh, mousetrap scene, uh, Hamlet backstage at the mousetrap. Um, it's worth noting the elements that we see on this page. So we have here Shakespeare's text in the middle of the block. We have the two sources wrapping around it on either side in smaller type, kind of enclosing the text. We even have the glosses from those sources just outside of the text block. And as uh, myself, as somebody who works on digital interfaces for reading Shakespeare, and especially for collecting inf a lot of information together on something like a screen, there's a lot to learn from this kind of a layout. There's a, there's a real elegance here, and yet there's a great deal of information that's being gathered together, and an interplay of text and image. It's also worth looking in detail at some of the image, and uh, Craig and Kessler's printers also used underlays and overlays when printing the wood engravings to create subtle shadings. I hope the, the difference between color is showing up in, in the slide here. Um, what we have here in this image is the king fleeing during the mousetrap scene. There's the king uh, moving across. Um, below that, slight, I'll make the first one slightly smaller. Below that, we have the court scene from the beginning of the play. Hamlet is, uh, is at the bottom there, slightly darker than the others. And what they've done is use this technique to isolate certain characters from the scene, giving them emphasis, uh, individuating them, uh, but also letting them remain abstract and isolating them from the scenes around them. But it's a very subtle but very effective uh, uh, technique, especially when you look at the actual paper and not just a PowerPoint slide on a screen. So to close, what we're seeing here is a book. We're seeing moving parts in a sense. Uh, this is, in many ways, Simon Brett's book acted out. This is a, a performance, uh, a book acting out a performance, as it were. Uh, in fact, it's a specific performance. It's that 1912 Moscow Hamlet. Here's one of Craig's design sketches for that production, uh, and this uh, from a book that he published in 1913. A production happened in 1912. And here, down below in the lower right, is, is that same scene as it manifested in an illustration here. Yet one of the things we can learn from this is that, uh, and thinking back to Bill Worthen's point about performance and how performance is not simply an enactment or a unfolding of the text. The Cranach Press Hamlet isn't simply a print version of a performance. It is designed to be a book, and it uses a complex but balanced page layout to include source text that the performance couldn't. So it is also something that embraces the form of the book in many ways. It also uses the opening at many points. So this is a way of exploring uh, and enacting what Simon Brett was talking about when he said that a performance in print can bring to life the silences, illustrate the dumb shows, and articulate the voyages. And the last point I'll, I'll leave you with is that as, as valuable as images of these things can be, they, they have to be experienced as books. So the Fisher staff has very kindly brought out these books. They're here at the front. Um, please don't let wine or beverages or food get anywhere near them, but friends of the Fisher audiences will know not to do that. But uh, I do invite you to come up afterward and, uh, and check out the books themselves. Thank you very much. <laughs>